came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Good morning, Zhao. My name is John. My pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, Pastor Jonah and Pastor Cameron are down in Dallas, Texas, soaking up the sun. No, they're really not soaking up the sun. They're in meetings all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day today, and coming home late tonight. They're in meetings around the United Methodist uh, Church's future. Uh, some of you know, some of that's a little bit up in the air, and uh, so they are uh, part of uh, a very large group of leaders that are trying to figure out how to move into the future faithfully uh, and obediently according to uh, what God would want them to do. So keep them in your prayers. And uh, so um, I am going to share the teaching time today, and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to do so. Uh, we are in a message series called The Last Week, and what we're doing is marching through seven days before Easter, and something happens in Jerusalem uh, with Jesus and his followers each one of those days, and so every Sunday we're going to do one of those, and today is Monday, Table Flipping Monday. And uh, we heard the text today. But I want to review just a little bit for you about what uh, Jonah talked about last week to get us started. Uh, Jonah, what they talked about was um, Palm Sunday, or what we call Protest Sunday here at Zao. And that was when Jesus and his entourage came into the east side of Jerusalem, of the city, uh, in a planned action, a planned protest came in, and he was riding on a donkey, which was a clear symbol that Jesus was claiming to be king. At the same time, on the west side of Jerusalem, Pilate and Pilate's army and horses and chariots and weapons and, and banners were coming in, claiming that, no, the emperor was Lord, not even king, but Lord. And so this was a clear action that Jesus and his followers uh, were to say, no, that is not true. The truth comes through Jesus and through justice and through caring for those who are in need, not the oppression by the Romans against the Palestinians. And so it was a planned protest, much different than many of us have grown up thinking about that uh, event. And uh, in, in the end of that event, it said that they looked for a way to uh, arrest Jesus, but because of the crowds, they couldn't do it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So uh, just to know that that happened, and on, on that Sunday night, because it was a Sunday when they went in, on that Sunday night, they went back to their camp outside of Jerusalem, on the east side of Jerusalem. And uh, that's where they were going to camp all week. Now, we have to remember, this week was called the week of Passover. 
Passover was a yearly event where we celebrated the liberation from slavery uh, as Jews from the Egyptians. And so every year they would have this huge celebration of Passover, which actually got pretty dicey because if you're celebrating liberation from oppression and slavery while you are being oppressed by an occupying government, yeah, you, you get the idea that it could get uh, a, a little difficult, which was why Pilate and the army would come in even with more army, with more chariots, with more horses, with more weapons during that time to keep the peace, right? So all that is happening. They go back on Sunday night, they get a good night's sleep, and they come back on Monday morning. Now, Monday morning is very, very important. Monday, they come. And we heard the lesson today. They come in, and all of a sudden, they get to the temple, and Jesus flips over the tables of the money changers, takes the animals out of their cages, and takes a whip. Now, we don't hear about that in Mark, but it's in Luke. We take a whip, and he whips the animals and drives them out, and basically causes chaos to shut down anything that's going on in the temple on the week of Passover, which would be like shutting down an Easter Sunday morning service, right? This is a big deal, what's going down. So, now there's a lot going on here that I want to make sure we understand. Uh, first of all, there is something called the sacrificial system of uh, the Jewish life. They would take things and bring them to the temple and sacrifice them and ask the priest to pray and so on and so forth. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. We have this whole Jesus driving out the money changers and flipping over tables and really causing a lot of trouble. And usually when pastors preach on this, they end there. But there's still too much going on. We're going to go a little bit deeper and a little bit wider today. Uh, we're going to look at how what Jesus is doing is related to the Roman occupation of the Palestinian land and Palestinian people. We're going to look at how there were high priests and leaders that were collaborating with the Romans. And this protest had something to do with that as well. So first, let's talk about the sacrificial system. Usually when we talk about this sacrificial system of I'm bringing an animal and the priest is going to kill it on the altar and that I'm going to be forgiven for my sins, it's something that we talk a lot about in the church as substitutionary atonement. That's a real churchy kind of phrase, substitutionary atonement. And what that means is God is really angry at me because I'm imperfect, I'm a sinner. And God, to forgive me, wants me dead. So instead, I'm going to take an animal, and I'm going to give that to the priest, and that animal will substitute for me, and God we will kill that animal, and the animal will have blood, the blood will go on the altar, and God's anger will be satiated, and I will be forgiven. Yikes. I mean, really, yikes. 
That is not the God that Jesus has. That's not the God that Jesus talks about. That's not the God that Jesus reveals to us. So this, we have this total misunderstanding of what was happening in the temple with these sacrifices. So let me back up a little bit and talk about broken relationships. If you have a relationship with a friend or a family member and it's wonderful and, and it's life-giving and then you do something, kind of hurts the relationship, kind of breaks that relationship. It doesn't feel good to you. It doesn't feel good to them. And you often go, I don't know what to do to heal, to bring re reconciliation to this relationship. So what you might do is go out and buy some flowers <laughs> or some chocolates or a meal or whatever. You'll invite them over and you'll give them their favorite coffee and whatever. And you say, I'm sorry. I messed up. I, I don't want us to be like this. And you seek reconciliation. And so you have this kind of physical thing often as kind of a, a peace offering, a gift offering. It says, I want to give you a gift. And really what you're doing is you're giving them a gift of yourself, your, your submission to the relationship. Like, I'm going to give myself to the relationship again. I'm going to try to do better and so on. That's reconciliation. And that's actually what's going on in the temple. So there were all kinds of offerings that you could bring to the temple to sacrifice. There was grain, grain offerings. You could bring grain from your field and give that. You could bring oil, or you could bring an animal. And that animal would be sacrificed. And by the way, the animal would not suffer. In fact, for the animal to be sacrificed... There was a prayer over that animal of thanks to God for that prayer, I mean for that animal. And then the animal was killed very quickly and humanely. And then the animal was cooked and given back for everyone to enjoy. Wow. And what we're doing here is saying to God, God, I have a broken relationship with you. It doesn't feel good to me. I want to restore that relationship. Here's a gift. Here's a gift. And you bring your whole self and you submit yourself to God and confession and your desire and your hopes and your dreams for a restored relationship. And guess what kind of God we have? We have a God who wants the same thing. A God who desires and hopes for reconciliation with each and every one of us. And so as we come and we bring that to the temple, God's just going, oh, yeah. We're going to do this. We're going to get restored. We're going to make this happen. And so that's the sacrificial system. It's a system of reconciliation. And we often, you know, misunderstand this idea of sacrifice. The word sacrifice means to make sacred. Now, we're not, if you, you go and you, you have an animal, we're not making that animal sacred. We're making our relationship with God sacred. We're making it healthy and holy again with God. And so that's the sacrifice. We also have to understand that, that sacrifice is really an important thing for, for Jewish understanding. And if you were to go back in time to Jesus' day and talk to uh, anybody on the street and say, oh, sacrifice, that's where 
God wants to kill you, and instead you get an animal, and they kill it. They would look at you like, what? what planet are you from? They would have no concept of that because all they're doing is restoring their relationship with God through a gift, a wonderful gift. So that's the sacrificial system. Now in Passover, thousands and thousands of people would come from very far away to Jerusalem. And this was the best time to do this sacrificial thing. And so when they got to Jerusalem, they had been traveling by foot, sometimes for days or a week, and they would not have brought their grain or oil or their dove or their sheep or whatever they were going to bring to the altar. So they had to buy it. So the temple offered them the ability to do that. And so before you could buy your animal, you couldn't use Roman coins because Roman coins had the seal of the emperor who claimed to be God. And so they said, you got to change your Roman coin for Jewish denarii and then make your, your, you know, your uh, purchase. And they would. Now, in most sermons, you'll hear that, oh, my gosh, they were evil money changers and evil animal sellers. They were gouging the people, and that's why Jesus overthrew and flipped the tables and whipped the animals and drove them out. No. Did they make money off of it? Well, I would hope so. They have families. They have to feed them, and they have to send them to school, and so on. Did... A little gouging happened here or there. Well, we're human beings. I expect so. But there's something bigger going on that Jesus cares about. Cares about immensely. What Jesus was doing was shutting down the temple. He was shutting down the activity of the temple. Now, why would he do that? Well, occupation. (laughs) So, Jesus wasn't protesting the minimum wage workers selling animals and changing money. Jesus was protesting something way bigger. So, Monday morning, he comes in, he does this. Now, on Sunday, he came in hot. I hope Jonah talked about that, right? And by the way, if you didn't get last week's sermon, all of the sermons at Zao are either on the Zao website or on iTunes podcasts. So, go back and listen to those. Anyway, Jesus came in hot on Sunday morning, but he came in even hotter today. And just as Sunday morning was pre-planned, this was pre-planned as well. Jesus knew exactly where he was going, exactly what he's going to do, and so did his followers. They went directly to the temple and shut it down with this protest. Now, what is he protesting? Roman occupation and the collaboration of the Jewish leaders in the temple with that occupation. Now, when they did this, when occupation happens, you need collaborators, right? You need people to keep the peace. And so Pilate and the emperor and so on would pay off the Jewish leaders. Some of them are named Herod, Caiaphas, Pilate, and others. And they would pay them off. And by the way, they all lived in these huge, huge mansions. And there was no middle class, by the way. There was only a, a poor class and an and a upper class. 
But not only would they do that, but they would threaten them and keep them under their thumb as well. And so these collaborators got rich, and they were victimized by the Roman occupation as well. And they allowed Rome to victimize the people. And so what we have in the temple here is high priests, Pharisees, and leaders using their position and power for themselves and not for the people. Now, this is not new, sadly, that people in power do this, right? So back years and years before this, the prophet Amos talked about it, and I have a text from, from the prophet Amos. Let's put that up, Sam. There we go. Now notice how, how this talks about the, the, the leadership not using the temple correctly. It says, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So Amos wanted to shut down the system too. Amos said, you know, the sacrificial system, you know, it's good. It's not bad. Your songs? Yeah, God loves good songs. You know, your prayers? Absolutely. But if you're not doing justice, all of that is meaningless and hollow. And so Jesus recalls Amos and the other prophets and says the same thing through this protest. He's saying to the leaders, you have lost your way. You're in it for yourselves. You're not in it for your people. God's ways are clearly not being followed in the temple. And so what Jesus was saying was that the temple should be the seat of the sacrificial system of healing and wholeness and reconciliation. And instead, it is the seat of the institutional submission to Rome. Wow. Wow. And so... He starts flipping tables. This pre-planned disruption of the imperial Jewish collaboration of the oppression of the Palestinian people. Now, this is no meek and mild Jesus. As Emily said, this is no precious moments Jesus. This is disruptor Jesus. Disruptor Jesus. And we got to know that Jesus is a disruptor of business as usual. He's shutting down the temple for a day. Now, it's a day. It's symbolic. Like, all actions are symbolic. But they are powerful. And when and where you do them is powerful. It's so interesting. Jesus was teaching all of this stuff out in, in the countryside, in the Galilee, to the peasants, to the poor. And you know what the leaders did? Nothing. Ah, he's an annoyance. But as soon as he comes to Jerusalem, as soon as he comes to the temple, as soon as he comes to the center of economic and political power and disrupts the capitalistic economic structures and the power structures of collaboration, now all of a sudden they care. Now all of a sudden they want to kill him. Now it is a big deal. And Jesus knew it. And that's why he went there. 
And so he goes there, and he says, this is political people. Now, have you ever heard anywhere that the church should stay out of politics? Yeah. Jesus didn't get the message. (laughs) What Jesus is doing here is civil disobedience. Civil disobedience for Jesus is really holy obedience. I want to say that again. Civil disobedience for Jesus is holy obedience. Obedience to God, not the ways of this world. Obedience to love, not hate. Obedience to liberation, not control. And so, disruptor Jesus comes. Now, we've had a lot of people in the church who were collaborators over our couple thousand years. But we've already had, always had, great disruptors as well. And I want to tell you about one. Bayard Rustin. See if we can get his picture up there. How many know about Bayard Rustin? Okay, just a very small few of you. And there's a reason for that. He was an absolute rock star leader in the civil rights movement along with Martin Luther King Jr. But you don't know him because he's black and queer. So he was not only opposed by the power systems in our government, but by many of the leaders within the civil rights movement itself back then. And so most of his work had to be behind the scenes because they wouldn't let him be up front very often. But that didn't stop him. (laughs) Not at all. And I I really encourage you to go just Google him and and read about Bayard Rustin. Awesome guy. And, And I have a quote from him today. So let's go to that quote. He said, we need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers. Our power is in our ability to make things unworkable. The only weapon we have is in our bodies, and we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. Angelic troublemakers. Have you ever thought that, you know, are you a Christian? Yep, I'm an angelic troublemaker. (laughs) Wow. God's calling us to be angelic troublemakers, to be disruptors. Wow. That's a little different, isn't it? Jesus flipping tables as an angelic troublemaker. But when he did this, he didn't do it alone. Jesus never did any of his street actions alone. He always had his people with him. And that's important for us to understand when God is calling us to participate in angelic troublemaking. We cannot do it alone. We need backup support. When Jesus entered on Sunday morning in Jerusalem, He had his people with him. When he was doing this, he had his people with him. In fact, again, it's said in our scripture today that the the Roman leaders wanted to get Jesus and kill him, but they couldn't because they were afraid of what? The crowd. The crowd matters. You matter. Your participation matters. Numbers matter. And so... He flipped the tables, and he knew he could do it because he had his backup with him. Now, we do this as individuals, and we do it together. Let me give you two examples. First, the individual. So I grew up uh, with uh, two parents who were were really awesome parents. They, They took care of us. They gave us what we needed. They loved us. They protected us. 
Um, I'm so blessed in so many ways. But they were imperfect, just like we all are. And my dad would teach us about race and racism, and then he would live a different way. <laughs> we heard a little bit about that going on in Taylor's testimony today. And I generally would just ignore it when it happened as I grew up. <clears throat> but then I got married, had two kids, and those kids began to grow. And they were little, but they could hear and understand what my father would say. And I was very troubled with that. So one day when he said something racist, I took a really big deep breath and I was shaking, literally shaking. And I said to him in the sternest voice I'd ever, ever used with my father, you will not say things like that in my house in front of my children. I had no idea what was going to happen. And it was a long, long pause. Everybody in the room wondering what he would do. And he said, okay. And he never did. He never did. Now, I didn't really do that alone. I had backup. Because I had Peggy, my wife. I had God was with me. I know God was with me. And I had my children as backup as well. Because if you don't have children... If you ever do, you'll understand that you will do anything to protect your children. And so I had backup. I couldn't do it without all of them there. So this action, this being a disruptor in my family and disrupting my dad and disrupting the relationship to, to change and demanding that things be different, I couldn't do alone. So if you're ever going to do this, get your backup. But we do it as a community of faith as well. So last year, the Unitarian Universalist Church West out in Brookfield was going to have an action of disruption by hosting Drag Queen Story Hour. Wonderful, wonderful. Drag Queen Story Hour, for those of you who don't know, is an act of holy disruption, especially if it's in a church. It challenges gender norms. It challenges queer phobia. It challenges us all to anchor the queer community in the church, in the loving embrace of God, in the loving embrace of family, both nuclear and extended. And so they had planned this Drag Queen Story Hour, and they got word that there was going to be a counter-protest to the Drag Queen Story Hour to try to shut it down. And so... The pastor there called the pastor of the Unitarian Universalist Church here downtown who called Zhao, and we were the backup. And we went. Can we have a picture up here? You can see the counter-protest there. Homosexuality is a sin. And you can see us in front of them blocking their way. We outnumbered them about 10 to 1. We also outlasted them when it began to rain. <laughs> and the story hour happened, just like it should. 
But you see, when the UU church out, on, out in Brookfield was going to do this, they needed backup. They needed numbers. They needed the crowd so that those who wanted to disrupt would say, well, there's nothing we can do. This crowd's just too big. It's the exact same thing. And so we're called to be angelic, troublemakers, disruptors. Now, how do we do it? I don't know how God's calling you to do it. Some of you have a lot of experience in this. Some of you have never done it, ever, ever. And it looks scary. And it is when you first do it, and even a little bit later, depending on what's going on. But we want to give you support to learn how to be obe holy, obedient followers of Jesus. Angelic disruptors. So on March 31st, and I didn't get a slide up here, but on March 31st, at the Unitarian Universalist Church here downtown, we're having an event where we're going to show a film, and there's going to be a panel where Pastor Jennifer from the UU Church, Pastor Jonah from here, are going to talk about what it means to go out into the streets. And this is one of our things being sponsored by Faith in the Streets. Fist, right? Faith in the Streets. So if you want to learn more about what it means to be an angelic tr troublemaker, we want to invite you to that event. So look for some stuff coming out on the Zao Squad page, on Zao MKE uh, uh, website, and so on for that event because it'll tell you a little bit about, about how this happens. And we're going to show a, a movie called The Reluctant Radical, uh, which is really a story of how somebody learned how to take that step into angelic troublemaking. And again, we never, ever do this alone. We always do it together. And that's why we gather as community here at Zao. So I want you to pray about what God's asking you to do, when God's asking you to do it, and how God's asking you to do it. Um, I don't know where God's asking you. Maybe you're out on the front line. Maybe you're in the back. Maybe you're just in prayer. And I should never say just when I talk about prayer, right? Maybe you're in prayer. But whatever it is, you're part of the backup team. And Jesus is calling us to follow. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor for all the angelic troublemakers who've gone before us. Those who lead the way, those who teach us by their example. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with us as we Seek to be faithful to you in many and various ways, one of those ways being wholly obedient to your call to be those angelic disruptors, both big and small. Amen. And then if you would uh, stand and sing with us, either in body or in spirit, we're going to sing about those turning over types.